This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all sorts here on this show. And this next one is a story about a bridge in Durham, North Carolina, that has captured the world's attention on YouTube. Today, Jesse brings us the story of the 11-foot, 8-inch high bridge. The 11-foot-8 bridge is a railroad trestle in Durham, North Carolina that people keep running into with their big trucks, buses, and RVs. Sometimes entire roofs of moving vans are removed, peeled and rolling back like a tin can. Big rigs are stuck under the thing. And despite many large warning signs and flashing lights, Warning drivers who dare to pass under its 11-foot-8 clearance. People just keep running into it. One day, Jurgen Hen started recording. The bridge is right outside my office. I started working in that building in 2002, and uh, every time a truck hits the bridge, we kind of notice because it's loud, usually. <laughs> and so over, over the years, and... You know, every, every few weeks we'd walk out there and check on the driver and, and kind of survey the mayhem. The trestle is over 100 years old and at the time it was built there were no standards for minimum clearance. On average, about once a month, the truck runs into the damn thing. In 2008, I was setting up a home security system and with, a, with you know, wireless cameras and decided that it would be kind of interesting to set up one of those cameras at the office to start filming the traffic and maybe catch one or two of these truck crashes to see what that actually looks like. I've never actually seen it happen in real life. As it happened, just a couple of weeks after I set up the camera, I caught the first crash and decided to put it on YouTube It became pretty popular right away, so clearly there was an interest for that kind of footage, so I kept recording. There was not much overhead, really. The North Carolina Railroad Company owns the trestle, but lifting it would cost millions of dollars, so they installed a crash beam. It reduces the impact of trucks hitting the trestle by slicing open the vehicle like a 46 Ford cutting through a DeLorean. They call it the can opener. The road can't be lowered because of sewer lines underneath, and there are warning signs for three blocks leading up to it. There's even a sensor that can detect a truck that won't fit. If your rig is too tall, it'll trigger a sequence of massive flashing lights that specifically tell the driver to exit. But still, people keep hitting it. Jurgen has hundreds of videos of people crashing into this thing and millions of views on YouTube. He even collects parts of the crash debris and sells it back to his fans. I credit my wife for that idea. I mean, I just clean up a little bit when we go down there, kind of pick up the pieces. I notice that they're kind of cool looking. You know, sometimes they're bent in spirals or, or other interesting shapes. So I started keeping the, the, the more interesting looking pieces in my office. And over the years, well, one box after another, I eventually hauled some of those boxes home. <laughs> and my wife said, honey, 
Um, let's do something with these boxes of truck pieces. How about I try to sell them? And I'm like, sure, honey, you try to sell them. Well, yeah, he was actually onto something and um, you know, took some nice pictures, named the pieces, and uh, started our online store where we sell t-shirts and crash art. That was that, that moniker was also right. <laughs> to call it crash art. Lucrative is probably not the word that comes to mind. Um, <laughs> I'm not about to quit my day job over this for sure. I, I would call it a self-sustaining hobby. Make enough money off the t-shirt sales and, and crash art. And I have a Patreon page now too to help sort of sustain the whole thing. Every couple years or so, get new cameras so I can capture good, good high-quality footage. Now, for the record, the actual clearance height of the 11-foot-8 bridge is 11-foot-10.8, which technically gives it 2.8 inches more than advertised. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And thanks for that story, Jesse. And people do everything in this country. They have all kinds of hobbies. Some people bowl. Some people play poker. Some people golf, knit. This guy, crash art. And as he said it, it's a self-sustaining hobby. And boy, that's better than most. Most of us have to pay for our hobbies. By the way, you can go to YouTube, and there's a video with somewhere over 7 million views of the ultimate montage of all the crashes that this gentleman has filmed over the years with his little homespun rigged camera that he just decided would capture all the crashes he'd never seen. Now he gets to see it. Now we all get to see it. And by the way, if you have quirky stories like this, passions, hobbies, or know people who do, send them our way. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. I'm trying to run down a guy who has a toaster museum. I'd seen an article about it somewhere. And if anybody knows, the wisdom of the crowds is great. I'd seen or read this story about a guy who'd collected toasters from the beginning of time and has turned his home and several others into this ultimate toaster museum. And that's right, toaster, T-O-A-S-T-E-R. And he's walking through it and talking about every single kind of toaster, the one piece of toast toaster, then the two piece of toast toaster, the ones that fold, the one that hold four. And he was just waxing poetic. And I can just imagine what his wife thinks of that toaster museum. Is it's tens of thousands of dollars in time, but if it keeps them off the streets, well, you know, what's the problem? Your hobbies, send them our way. A friend, somebody in town, ouramericannetwork.org. The story, the 11-foot, 8-inch bridge, actually, the 11-foot, 10-inch bridge, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to music to 
sports, and of course, history. We love talking about history, but we also love talking to Heidi Mitchell at the Wall Street Journal because we love her regular feature there, The Burning Question. And this last burning question, what's the best way to take an afternoon nap, had us all puzzling. And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, Heidi, begin begin with things simple. Are you a napper? Uh, so there are three types of people. There's those who can just fall asleep like on a train standing up. There's people who, who like to take a nap and can take a nap. And then there's people like me who say there's just no scenario in which I could fall asleep during the day. <laughs> yeah, you're my wife. She can't ever fall asleep. I, my wife says I'm not a napper. I'm a narcoleptic. I can fall asleep. <laughs> I can just dead fall asleep anywhere when I'm tired. So I don't know yeah. that I'm a napper. I just I just fall asleep. So I fall in that first category. Tell us about who you talk to about this thing called napping, Heidi. So I talked to a guy called David Dingis, who is a professor at Penn at the Perlman School of Medicine. He's written a book on this stuff. He's a, a real expert, and he was really deep in the weeds. It was a great conversation. He has lots of um, thoughts on your chronobiological clock and 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 the medical aspects of napping um, and also coffee, which are one of our other favorite subjects at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so yeah, he had a lot, a lot to say. Um, he's a big advocate of naps, as we all should be, it turns out. And he said something about naps being either voluntary or involuntary. What's the difference between the two of those? And also, what did he have to say about sleep more generally? I mean, oh, do we need naps because we're not getting enough sleep? Or do we need naps so, in addition to the sleep we should already have? So there's a couple things. Is I mean, most of us in the in the modern world, we tend to be sleep deprived. We're supposed to get, you know, it varies between seven and ten hours, depending on which doctor you ask. But most of us aren't building in the seven hours of sleep. That means getting into bed, you know, a half an hour before you go to sleep, right? So you get the full seven hours of sleep. Um, and most of us just don't have that kind of time. So we're we're sleep deprived. We build up the sleep debt. We're tired, and so a nap can alleviate that. Even a short nap can alleviate that. So if you're super-duper um, sleep-deprived, you will, rather than taking off your clothes and getting into bed and, and building a nap into your day, you'll have what's called an involuntary nap, and you'll just fall asleep at your desk or on the train or while driving your car, God forbid. Um, so, you know, you want to try and avoid sleep debt for sure. That's like the main thing. But then also there's this genetic component, which we can get to later, um, which is not well understood, but it appears as though we are programmed evolutionarily to want to nap kind of after lunch and at how, the height of the heat. Talk about that genetic component. Let's talk about that right now, Heidi. So the theory is that, you know, at the height of the day when, you know, most of civilization evolved around the equator where it's super hot during the day, the animals are not out there napping. So it's a safe time to go take a break. Um, so, so there seems to be this window after lunch, before dinner, there's a question of where exactly it falls, but where your, your biological, your evolutionary clock wants you to just chill out, which is sort of why at four o'clock we all need a cup of coffee, right? We get yep. tired or sugar, you know, we need time to boost us. So, you know, they're not totally sure why, but the thinking is that, yeah, during, for most of humanity, you know, those were safe hours to sleep and you couldn't hunt and you couldn't really forage. It was really hot. 
And so it was a good time to sleep. And then when it got dark, you went to sleep. And when it got light, you woke up. That makes complete sense. And any of us who spend time when we're on vacations, we've been to the beach all day. I mean, we, we know that that cycle kicks in hard yeah, at, exactly. at four o'clock. Yeah. Hot. You fall asleep. And, and sometimes you wake up if you, if you were awoken by an alarm or you didn't get, you didn't catch up all of your sleep debt and fill your sleep tank all the way, um, you might feel a little bit groggy. And so a lot of people don't like that, which is why a lot of people choose not to nap because they don't feel great when they wake up. They feel like they're not a hundred percent. So this is where coffee comes in. Yep, but, yep. uh, but a lot of people will avoid a nap because they don't like that groggy feeling. They just don't feel like they can perform. Right. And so how exactly do we doze off? Cause this I thought was the most interesting part of the piece. I know, right? So fascinating. So it's very biological. So your muscles start to relax. So let's say you're, you're standing up on a train holding onto the bar in the middle there. So then your arms start to lose their, um, control and they relax and then your hands relax and then your eyelids go and then your neck goes, right? So then your head falls over and then you jerk up. Okay. So yep. this is terrible because your brain does not go into um, a good deep sleep and you're just, it's almost like a disturbed night of sleep. It, you're just like falling and rising and falling and rising. You can imagine how it does kind of feel amazing though, that feeling of falling into a deep sleep when you're not supposed to. Right. There's some, some like guilt, delicious guilt built into that, but it's not, it's not going to give you the replenish your sleep debt the way that a voluntary nap where you're laying down is going to, it's going to, it's not going to do that for you. Well, I love the part here where you say that triggers the part of your brain that feels you're falling. That's of course when the neck goes, which wakes you up. I mean, how many times yeah. are we woken up by the nap we're almost involuntarily pushed into by our exhaustion? Or how about in a meeting? <laughs> That's even more exciting. That's the worst. <laughs> that Sunglass. is the worst. That is. So, so what's the best way, the, the very best way to take a nap? So it's funny because the way that we work now, I don't know what your office is like, but typically offices now are open plan. And even those that are fortunate enough to have an office, they tend to be glassy. So this is not a good way to take a nap because you, for, we're not sure why. I think it has to do with, you know, our animal instinct, but you need to be in a safe place. So he was talking actually about homeless people and how it's really so sad to see people sleeping on a park bench because it's not a safe environment to sleep in. And so they're probably not getting quality sleep. Um, and so we're a little bit in a zone all the time. Um, but so you want to be in a, obviously in a cool place because you sleep best when it's like in the sixties. Um, you know, ideally you want to be, you want to be prone because when you're laying down, um, your body can, the, all those muscles can relax and your head's not going to fall over and wake you up. And you want to be in a dark space that, you know, no one's watching you. So you feel safe. So a glassy office is not a great place. It used to be that, um, like seeing a madman or whatever, and, you know, you could just close the door, lay down on your couch and take a 15 minute nap and no, just say, you know, don't interrupt me for 15 minutes. And it was totally fine. That's kind of looked upon as lazy now. And it's not that way in all cultures. You know, in Japan, they're still okay with naps. The siesta is still a big thing in, in um, Spanish-speaking countries. Um, and the way that we know that taking a mid-afternoon nap is good um, is that places like um, China, when they industrialized, they forbade, um, they forbade the nap and the productivity didn't go up. So there's, there's this, they call it a sleep-wake window that opens up in the afternoon and you're, it's a harmonic gate in your circadian rhythm and it just opens up. And, and so if you can find, uh, I don't know, a secret room in your office 
where you can shut and lock the door, set your phone alarm for like 15, 20 minutes. And I, I promise you, you will feel refreshed. Even if you don't totally fall asleep, you'll feel refreshed. You can have a cup of coffee after. Um, and then you'll, you should be a hundred percent. And have you seen these places, Heidi, at the airport now around American airports where you can like basically go in and take a nap? Have you seen Yes, those? I've seen these pods, right? Yeah, they're little pods, and they're trying to create that cool space where you can be prone, and it's dark, and it's you're by yourself. Japanese. And they're, they're like in 15-minute increments, which is really kind of all you need. Yep. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you could just do 15 minutes, and you can feel much better. Well, I love what Dr. Dingy said. He said, quote, being awake is like carrying a bag on your back. The longer you're awake, the more bricks you add, he says. And when you take a nap, you remove some of those bricks. And by the way, Dr. Dingy's, that's the uh, professor you talked at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. His book is Sleep and Alertness, Chronobiological, Behavioral, and Medical Aspects of Napping. So he wrote a whole yeah, book on this. He wrote a, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sitting at a bookstore near you, Heidi. Yeah, I'm sure. I think you have to buy it on Amazon used. I think it may be out of print, but he's written other books as well and lots of papers, but he's so into this subject and we talked for at least an hour. Um, but he was, we were asking, you know, is there a way that employers can, can help, uh, you know, their, their employees to have this built in? And he said, you know, employers are really all about their profits, their bottom line. And so, you know, I've seen it at, you've seen it at Google, you know, they have those pods. Yep. So some forward-thinking um, corporations do have that, but I do think there is still um, a stigma attached to taking a nap in the middle of the day. And if we can just somehow societally remove that stigma, we would have a much more productive society. We would be less hangry, grumpy, have nicer exchanges. Um, you know, work life would be better balanced. Um, and free coffee. Well, here at Our American Stories, the staff has free coffee and they can nap anytime, especially when we're doing the show. Heidi, thanks so much for joining us as always. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Go have your 15-minute nap after lunch. Oh, I will. And Heidi Mitchell, as always, the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. This is Our American Stories. American stories. And now our own Joey Cortez brings us the story of an engineer who was part of various technological breakthroughs at the very start of Silicon Valley's ascent. There's always one guy who you love to hate. We had that guy in our work group. You're listening to Richard Jordan, a talented engineer reminiscing on the shenanigans during his career at Hewlett Packard in the 1970s. And those people are the ones that just don't line up with everyone else's expectation. You might see them as being kind of lazy or they weren't pulling their chain towards this final solution. And this guy was actually running a business on the side while he also worked at Hewlett Packard. Well, I was. Was, as in Steve Wozniak 
the future co-founder and true technological maestro behind Apple. And two other engineers decided we were going to get back at this guy. We thought, well, you know what? His office is too big. Just too big for a guy like that. Every other weekend, someone would come in and move his cubicle walls in imperceptibly, an inch or two. And there was carpet on the ground, so you had, it wasn't just moving the walls. You had to rub out the indentations from where the, the panels were. And we had to do it just a little bit at a time. We, this went on for weeks. And I think we actually grew impatience with him being able to understand that he was being pranked. And so one week we actually moved the cubicles in far enough where he could not physically withdraw his chair from his desk and get in. And he had to climb in over the top. And that was the prank that got us to see the boss's boss. It was an exciting time. I look back in my job history and as much as I like previous jobs, this was probably the most rewarding work experience I've ever had. The reward came from the fact that it was hard work and hard play. It was irreverent and serious. The thing that made HP just a wonderful environment to work at, they were always interested in keeping your, the engineer's attention at the highest level. No matter what you were working on, if you had an itch to explore something on an emerging technology, they would sponsor without any formality. It was called a G-job. A G-job was an idea that you had on your own, that you came up with, and that you did the principal amount of development. You did the work. If you needed to bring other people in, you did. But you did this under the full realization that you were using HP parts from lab stock. I, as a mechanical engineer, could go down and use the machine shop. I could get materials there for free. And so throughout that process, many people had a G-job. Waz at that time had a G-job also. He wanted to design a computer that he could do some programming on. And so he had this computer that he built up over time and it was hardwired, what they call wire wrap. All the ICs were in sockets. It was on a, a vector board. It was allowed you to make a quasi-circuit board, not a printed circuit board, but a circuit board. And he wired it up and everything and basically created the operating system for it and all of the hooks that he needed to be able to program and to run some very simple programs. Well, we, our work group, but Waz especially, wanted to take this either to HP management or he wanted to have it as his own. Well, the deal was that HP, if you had a G-job and you used HP facilities and materials, etc., you had to give them the right of first refusal. So I remember very clearly the day that uh, Waz went into a room with his computer and he demonstrated it to management and management's management, a lot of bigwigs in that room. And I can remember the smile on Steve's face when he walked outside the door and he exclaimed from across the room, they don't want it. A decision HP surely regrets to this day. Waz then partnered with Steve Jobs, and his invention would eventually become the Apple I. It would revolutionize technology. Before the Apple I, personal computers came unassembled. 
They were sold in kits that the customer had to put together, and they operated with lights and switches, essentially unusable to the average person. The Apple One would change everything. One day, serendipity would have it, I received a call at work from a fellow that I once worked with, and his name was Steve Wozniak. And we had a quick little chat. He said, we're doing some fun stuff here. Why don't you come on down and see what we're what it's all about? I went and interviewed, talked to a bunch of people, and a few days later, I get a call with an offer of employment. Here, I was working at the Holy Grail in Silicon Valley, Hewlett Packard. And what do I get from Apple? I get an offer, which was compelling, but darn if the salary wasn't quite what I was making at Hewlett Packard. And to me, that just seemed wrong. It didn't seem right that I should leave an established institution that most people would die for to work at and to go to a startup with no history, an unknown future, and an unknown work environment. So I phoned up Dr. Tom Whitney, who was the guy who was running engineering. He'd just been hired. And I told him in a very impassioned plea that I really wanted to come work for you, but it just seemed wrong that I would have to take a salary cut. And by the way, I think the salary cut was like under $200. It's comical to think about that now. And he reminded me, he says, but you know, you get a stock option here. Back to being naive. What did I know about stock options? I didn't know anything about stock options. I, I knew what they were and I knew how they kind of worked, but I had no idea of the economic power that they, they could yield. So I said, yeah, I know about that, but it just doesn't seem right. We parted kindly on the phone and about three or four hours later, he gives me a call back. He says, we'll match the salary that HP's giving you and you still get to keep your stock option. So I said, great, I'm on board. So the day comes that I'm going to report to Apple. I go there. It's a casual place. You know, you're not suit and tie there. You're, you're jeans and slacks and polo shirts and, or t-shirts. And I park in the parking lot and I find the entrance to the place and I sit down in the lobby and there's a station for the receptionist, but there's no receptionist. There's a lot of people milling in and out, in and out. No one's saying any word, but it's like, it's like a beehive. I see a woman come out, sits at the desk. She doesn't even talk to me. I just kind of sit there and I'm thinking, well, pretty soon someone's going to come and see me. And after sitting there probably a half hour, a very kind of scruffy looking guy comes in to the, he says, uh, you, you have any business here? And I said, yes, I'm a, I'm a new hire. He says, what's your name? And I said, Richard Jordan. And he goes, well, who are you working for? And I told him the name, the fellow's name was Rod Holt. And he says, oh, Rod. He says, well, what are, you, what are you gonna do here? And I says, I'm in the engineering department. He says, well, get up off your go in there and start doing some of that you do. Uh, he said, the engineering department's down that hall. As he pointed down past the reception desk. I didn't recognize him, didn't know him, but I quickly learned that that was Steve Jobs who told me essentially to get off of my butt and start working if I was an employee. And when we come back, more from Richard Jordan. And what an extraordinary story. An engineer, and by the way, engineers in this country, we need more of them. We need more people studying STEM. And my goodness, it's the, well, it's the difference in our future or not, whether we can continue to create more Richard Jordans and push the envelope on technology and science. 
as it relates to every aspect of our society. But again, these are human stories, and these companies don't just come and spring from nothing. When we come back, more with Richard Jordan and the story of him hopping from this giant HP to this restless little startup called Apple that nobody knew anything about. More of this remarkable story, this life's journey of an engineer turned, in a way, an entrepreneur, here on Our American Stories. continue now with our American stories and Richard Jordan's story. He had just made the move from HP to Apple, just as they were marketing their very first product, the Apple One. Let's get back to Richard and the rest of his story. When I first started Apple, Steve Jobs was a very powerful influence. He didn't have the experience and the gravitas that he had in later years, but he was a very determined, opinionated, and forceful individual. And one of the things I learned from him that I started getting introduced to at Ampex, one of my earliest jobs, followed by HP, was the whole notion of industrial design. How important the holistic view of product development is to success. And Steve Jobs was that guy. He was the guy who built a fence with his dad in his backyard And the father, when he went back to look at how the boards looked on the back side of the fence, the side of the fence that his family would never see, he told his son when he asked, what are you worrying about that? I don't know exactly what the answer was, but it was important. It was part of, it was part of the design. It was part of the success of that fence. And Steve took that same sort of philosophy to Apple And he was the most forceful advocate I have ever met regarding the importance of industrial design to product success. And when Steve left in 1984, I stepped into a new job because I worked for a fellow by the name of Jean-Louis Gasset from Europe. And basically Jean-Louis ended up running engineering. And I was, you know, plucked from the the candidates and put into the job of basically running product design. Now, product design at Apple meant that you were controlling from the concept of the idea out to the manufacturing floor. I did not write software. I did not have control over that, nor did I do the hardware, which is the development of the circuit board. But sort of everything in between and on both ends, I was, that was my... Uh, purview. That's the things that I focused in on. John Louis was a marvel to work for, and he impressed upon me very early when we had many, many discussions how important the notion of product design was, specifically industrial design. It was a process that was respected at Apple. However, things happen and people move on. Uh, John Louis left and Over the next year or two, 
the importance of it seemed to be losing its significance. And I could just see on the horizon the new people being brought in just didn't share my same belief about product design, industrial design, etc., that both Steve Jobs and Gasset had shown. And the notion that industrial design, product design was not going to be revered, it was much more of a financial sort of discussion or, or control, bureaucratic control of the product design process, I bailed. Apple was no longer a startup. This is something many companies go through. As they become bigger and more corporate, the heart and the soul of the enterprise often fades away. Richard moved on to other tech startups, like how Apple used to be. He helped pave the way for many emerging technologies, from digital directories found in malls and airports to video phone calls. Richard stayed on the cutting edge and now considers his success as an engineer a result of serendipity and preparation. Louis Pasteur has a quote which I really like and I've taught it to my kids, which is, luck favors the prepared mind. And that's how I view my life. For most of my career, I thought of myself as I was in the, in the driver's seat. I was in command here. Things would happen when I took the appropriate action and that the outcome was determined by the effort that I put into something. But nothing would prepare Richard for what too many families go through. His mother was diagnosed with dementia. When my father was alive, he and I had many long talks, and uh, we had decided that as long as possible, my mom was going to remain in her home. That would be my childhood home. And so I was prepared to do anything to make that happen. And when you've got a dementia patient, uh, they're not safe by themselves. It's from anything from taking your meds to preparing your meal to remembering to turn the stove off to, to getting around town and, and carrying on a life that makes you happy and, and makes you seem like you're fulfilled. And so that was a, that was, that's a tough balance to maintain. But the challenges were just holding together your life. Remember, I have a family and kids and a job and, and my mom doesn't live near me. So whenever I would step in and, and uh, give the caregivers a little relief, it was a big dislocation to how I operated my life. And it was a lesson in how to manage things, make decisions about people's lives. I'm very used to making decisions about inanimate objects, uh, products, and how you get them to market, how you design them, and how you get them tooled up and ready for manufacturing. That all I've done for decades, and I'm comfortable with those decisions. But now, when my mom is sick, I have to step up and make very personal decisions about her life. When to take the car keys away from her. That was a big deal. And I've talked to many people who've had parents that they've had to do that. My mom felt as though I was taking her freedom away for her. While doing those kinds of decisions, you have to fill in the, the, the blank spots that are formed. You have to make their lives seem as normal as possible. So you have to sort of redouble your effort. There was little solace in, because the things I wanted to do for my mom had no effect on her, uh, or minimum effect. I couldn't fix her problem. I couldn't make her life happy. I couldn't bring back her memory. None of those things. And that gives you pause for thought. 
When you spend time with people with dementia, you understand very quickly how powerless you are. A realization that brought Richard closer to Christ. I realized that there was a much larger influence and force in my life that was going to dictate how I performed and how I felt about myself. And so I think faith allowed me to step back from the problem and look at it in the larger picture. Richard had a lot on his plate. Though he still insisted on being present for his wife, Sandy, and his children. I made a, a pact with Sandy early on. I said I could be here in the morning or I could be here in the evening, but I'm going to be here. And I was very concerned about being an absentee parent, you know, there but not there enough. And so what my role, and I, I was, I'm very comfortable with getting up before dawn. And so my, all my professional life, I've always been at work as the sun rises, so I could be home for dinner at night. And dinner at our house didn't mean everyone got a plate and went to their room. Dinner at our house was around the family dining table where we talked about stuff. We talked about what happened at school and to world hunger and the war in Iraq. I mean, they were well-versed in the current events, both at a macro and a micro level. Richard jokes that he's given too many, quote, sermons to his children over the years. One of them is about the success that he has both experienced and witnessed. It's about reliance on the individual. You're not a victim. I've taught my kids the, the value of, of hard work, resolve, and follow through. You will accomplish the effort you put into it. This has been a sermon that has been repeated to them for 30 years. The most valuable people I had in any organization that I ran weren't the ones that were the smartest, that had the highest IQ, that had the most degrees. That's all very helpful and very useful. The most valued people you can have are the people who know how to take an idea, a thought, an initiative, and they know how to drag it across the finish line. And what great storytelling by Richard Jordan. And he was there at the beginning of one of the greatest companies in American history, and that's Apple. And he said to Steve Jobs, he's a forceful advocate for the importance of industrial design to a product's success, and no doubt that's true. We spent an hour talking to Walter Isaacson, and it's a terrific hour. It's on our website. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. We also have that great Steve Jobs speech at Stanford where he talks about dropping out of Reed College and dropping back in and taking a calligraphy course which gave him a great sense of design and beauty. And so both a great industrial design, but also a just beautiful phone to look at and operate. Well, everybody's now copied or tried to copy what Apple created. And what a story this is about free markets, about American entrepreneurialism. This man left a behemoth, Hewlett Packard, to join this little startup. And what did it was, well, just your curiosity. What the heck? Let's build something new. And the stock options didn't hurt. And by the way, any of us could have owned it any time along the way, including now, a share in Apple stock. And all of this created this remarkable product, a computer in our hand that takes pictures, plays music, unimaginable and completely out of reach of kings 20 years ago. And now in the hand of every kid in America and kids around the world. But the best part of this story was the personal part. He found out in the end 
Some problems can't be solved. When his mom got sick, he was there, and it was really tough. And in the end, this all brought him closer to his faith. And this is a main theme here on this show, that faith and science are not incompatible. Not at all. This is a myth sold by many people, but it's just not true. This was an engineer who came closer to God. And by the way, always there with the family around the table, talking about and teaching the things that matter in life. Hard work, resolve, and follow through matter more than sheer talent. In the end, the talent is getting an idea across the finish line. Richard Jordan's story, his family's story, Apple's story, and so much more here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Brian Head Welsh was a rock star who thought he had it all. He was the co-founder and lead guitarist of the Grammy Award-winning multi-platinum band Korn one of the biggest and most controversial rock bands on the planet. He lived in a mansion, had millions of dollars in the bank, and legions of fans across the globe. He was living the good life, and it should have been perfect, but it was all a lie. Here's Brian Welch with his story, and by the way, you're going to hear laughter in the background, as he told his story at a sold-out church in, of all places, Conway, Arkansas. And by the way, good churches... The really good ones. Well, people share the real stories of their lives, not the fake ones. I grew up just loving music, man. My parents in 1980 bought me ACDC Back in Black. I turned that record. Yeah, I turned that record on. It was over. I was like, um, that's it. I want to be that. I stared at Angus Young. I stared at his picture like it just played. Then I got every album out there and just. Played that uh, Iron Maiden, Ozzy Osbourne, like all these, all these bands, and and you know I just wanted to be a rock star, man. I met the guys in Corn in uh, elementary. Met Jonathan actually, Jonathan Davis, a singer, went to uh, school with me in elementary school. Man, we just uh, we never really talked, but it was it's crazy that I kn- I've known him that long or knew of him at least. And then Fieldy, I met the bass player I met in Compton Junior High School. He was into Duran Duran. I taught him about metal. <laughs> I met James Monkey Schaefer, uh, the other guitar player in our band, um, as a freshman in high school. And so I met these guys, man, and I just we just loved music. We just loved it. I'd say around 1987, these guys, they went, they went and started hanging out with this other guy named Pete Capra. And he was like, dude, there's some new music. There's some new bands coming out. And he showed them Red Hot Chili Peppers and Faith No More before they either of them got big. So they were they were they started getting into that music, and then they started forming this band away from me, like a uh, a Chili Peppers ripoff band, right? R- rap rock or no no funk rock. It was you know slap bass. That by that time Fieldy got really good. He practiced a lot, and he turned into a slamming bass player. They they went and had moved down to Hollywood, California, because we grew up two hours away from Hollywood. 
and I was stuck with this girl, and uh, I, I treat her. Sorry. I actually really loved her, but I was I was stuck back in this bad relationship, and I treated her bad, and and uh, she was a really sweet girl actually, and uh, I I was controlling. I I was so insecure. I had this self hatred that I grew when I was probably junior high. You know, I got picked on and uh, didn't like the way I looked, and uh, was just you know body. I felt like I was fat and, and just everybody went through puberty before me. So it was like, that's the worst, you know? So everyone's kicking my butt, you know? I'm this little guy, leave me alone. <laughs> and but, but I look in the mirror and something in my mind and my heart was like, I don't like you, you're not good enough, you're ugly, you know? All this stuff, all these, you know? And so I carried that. Even, it's like I, I bought this lie about myself and, and I carried that. People that got close to me, I didn't treat right, especially relationships. And so that girl, she ended up dumping me. And uh, I remember I went down to Hollywood, California, um, and, and visited the guys because they're still my friends, you know. And they were just like, uh, man, you should, you should move in with us, you know. Just stay with us, man. You're not doing good. And, and so I moved in with these guys, and I became, I started them with their instruments, and I turn into their roadie. I'm carrying their, their gear, and I mean, they're carrying it with me, because they don't got nothing, right? They're like, they, they have to pay to play. That was Hollywood back then. And so, but yeah, well, they would. I was the worst roadie in the history of roadies, because they were my friends. I'm like, they tell me to do something, I'm like, shut up. All you pay me with is like two drink tickets. What am I, you can't boss me around. They'd be playing a show up there, and I'd be at the bar with my drink ticket, getting a, getting a drink, and like they knock their cords out, and their amp doesn't work, and I'm like, I'm like at the bar going, it's by your foot, the cords by your foot. I'm not helping at all. I was the worst roadie ever. So I did that for a few years, and as divine intervention would have it, Alice in Chains came out. <laughs> And then, what, some Faith and More started getting really big. Metallica was huge. Um, Ozzy, uh, No More Tears, that record came out. So this low music thing, grunge thing was happening. But, uh, and so, thank God, these guys got out of their little funk rock phase, Chili Peppers ripoff thing. And I like Chili Peppers, don't get me wrong. It was just too much of a, a they're copying them, you know? And so, they asked me to join. And, uh... And they, 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 were, they were wanting to play some Alice in Chains type of music or something like that. And Faith No More-ish and just more rock, you know. And thank God because I was just I was partying like crazy. One of my roommates, we all lived together. We lived at the beach, like right close to the beach. But, you know, the, the rent was expensive, but you pile six people in there. It becomes like 200 bucks each. And so we, would, like, we had one guy in the garage. I was in the closet. Then there's two bedrooms and then a pool room where someone slept in. It was crazy. But I was, I loved the alcohol, I was addicted to alcohol from like age 16, I just, my dad was a drinker, man, he, uh, he, he ran some chevrons with my uncle, a couple of like gas stations, and you know, one time, he was just, he would drink, he wouldn't drink all the time, but he would slip back and forth, you know, and, and then when he, when he drank heavy, he would drink heavy, like one day he came home, he'd do some bank runs for the business, and, and uh, he had a water bottle, and I went to grab it, and I was and I grabbed it just to get a drink. Let me get a drink, Dad. You know, teenager, who cares? And I take it, 
And he's like, give me that, give me that. And I smelled like vodka. It was straight vodka. And I, was, I didn't confront him or nothing, but I was just like, whoa, dad's partying. You know? And, uh, and so we have that, that, that kind of curse in our family line, right? And so I stepped into it at 16. And so when I joined the band, we instantly, we got Jonathan Davis in the band. We went to the Huntington Beach Pier. We were just drinking some 40 ounces of beer. And we are like, okay, we're in a band now. What are we going to call ourselves? And Corn popped up. The singer, Jonathan, said, what about Corn? And what about Corn? Well, you're going to hear more about Corn and this remarkable story. Brian Head Welsh, the lead guitarist of this big, big band. And what happens next? His story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories, and you're listening to Brian Head Welsh, and again, lead guitarist and co-founder of the Grammy Award-winning multi-platinum band, Corn. And again, here he is at a sold-out church in Conway, Arkansas, telling his life story, the real story. We're like, okay, we're in a band now, what are we going to call ourselves? And Corn popped up, the singer, Jonathan, said, what about Corn? A couple stories going around, but we just thought it was cool because it was with a K and a backwards R. People are doing that like crazy now, right? Back then it was like different, you know? Spell a word different, you know? And it was a cool branding thing. And we tested it in Huntington Beach, small little beach town. And we put these corn stickers. We did the logo almost, it's almost exact to what it, what it is now. It looks more modern now, but back then it was, it was, it's really close. And so we would just plaster like, no one knew what corn was. We just plastered stickers everywhere, stop signs, uh, businesses, everywhere, all over the place. And everyone in the, in the city was going, man, what is corn? What is this? K-O-R-N, what is that? We knew that people would either love it or hate it, but they would not forget it. And so, yeah, we started playing shows around in Orange County. Then we played uh, anything that we could do to get people to our shows. We would tell our friends uh, we found a place that had uh, school buses, and we rented a school bus and put a keg in the back and said, give us 10 bucks. You can ride in the bus. We're going to go play Hollywood. Anything we could do. So we got there, and our name started getting around. This weird band, Corn is coming in. They're, they're bringing a bus with all these fans, and the place is going off. And so a record company started hearing about it. Next thing you know, we got a couple different record companies getting ready to uh, offer us a deal. We ended up signing with Immortal Records. Um, it's a, it's a, it was a label off of Sony Music, and so we recorded our first record. That's when we got introduced to methamphetamines, and uh, man, <sighs> yeah, it's crazy because I didn't like it the first time because I'm used to going to sleep. You know, you got a routine in life. You're like, you're, you, you get up, you spend your day doing whatever, and you go to sleep at night. <laughs> you can't sleep on meth. They should put a little sign on it, right? can't sleep on this i just i didn't know i thought it was like a couple hour high or something i didn't know i just was oblivious and so yeah i just i, I tossed and turned i hit my friend up at 10 a.m i was like dude i didn't sleep all night and he's like i know dude let's go to taco bell so he picks me up we go to taco bell and i start eating this taco and like the roof of my mouth is like sore or something from the meth 
And I'm like, oh, and it, I can't. I was like, this taco tastes gross. So everything I loved, it took away my sleep, took away my Taco Bell. And so I don't know why I continued. But when we were starting corn, man, this guy, that when we, once we figured out that you're supposed to stay up on it, then we're like, okay, but we just won't sleep. And we would go two or three days without sleeping, freaking all, all spun out meth heads, you know, looking. But we would try to write songs, try to write a song. When you're high, it sounds like the, you're Mozart or something. Then you sober up, you wake up the next day after a three-day run or something, you listen to it, and it's like, it's, you're not even in key. It's just like, what is this? It sounded so good on, on the drug. And so, yeah, it was off and on, but we started corn, it was off and on with that drug. But, you know, we would get sober, the producer would be like, you know, yeah, I just got to get off that stuff, we need to record an album. We got the record done, and we started touring right after that and started gaining fans right away. But, like, we knew we had something, but I never thought we would get, like, real big. I, I thought that maybe we could get, like, a club-level big. Maybe, like, tour, tour America, you know, and play some clubs and pack out just, like, crazy, you know? It was crazy, crazy but small. And it just started growing. And it was a trip because uh, when our second record came out, it hit number three on Billboard um, out of the whole country. Number three, and I'm just going, how is this happening? I see myself at 3 a.m. on MTV. You know, we're all, corn's playing, they're playing the corn videos. And I'm looking, I'm like looking at this, I'm on, I'm like, oh, that's, well, I'm on TV, what's up? <laughs> and then I look out my window and I see a beat up VW bug. And I'm like, wait, when I watch my heroes on TV, I thought they were rich and famous. I'm like, I got a little bug out there. So the money wasn't pouring in yet. So yeah, the, the second record came out, man. And when you when you tour, the crazy thing is you don't think about when you're when you're a kid is that the touring cycle is just it's like anything else. You get up and you do the same thing every day, right? When you get on the road, you're in a different city, and at first you're just like, oh man, we're in Baltimore, we're in you know wherever it is, and you're like, this is so cool. But then it's the same people. And you load into a, a building that looks the same. You don't have time to go look at the city. And you get up and you play the same songs. The only thing different is a crowd. But it starts to feel like the same thing. And within like a two or three years, I realized that it's not all glamorous like you think. Even the big shows, it's the same thing, man. You do the same thing every day. And it, it, it's like a career. It's a, it's a career. It's a fun one because you're playing, you're doing what you love. But it messes with your mind because you have this picture of this this bigger than life persona that you'll become, and it's just not like that. It's just you're the same old person doing doing something, but you're it's crazy because you're thankful for all the people out there in the crowd. But it's just a trip, I'm telling you. So we're thankful though because we kept growing and growing and growing. And after our, our second record cycle, we went into the studio and started really going for it and. Uh, our record company was just like, let us do whatever we wanted. Well, you know, we don't, we don't really understand this corn band, but people seem to like them, the guys with the suits. So let them keep doing what they're doing. So we went in, and that's, that's when we got a little bit more. We just wanted to try to kind of try things that we didn't. The first couple of records, and we, get, we wrote Got the Life and Freak on a Leash, and those big songs, that record, we spent a lot of months, and that came out, went through the roof, man. TRL and MTV was huge, and 
we were just on there every day, skyrocketing. My, I, I called my dad then, and and I was just like, Dad, we are number one in the country this week, and selling like 150,000 records a week. It was crazy. And we were on TV every day. MTV News followed us, and it was surreal, man, to be in that mainstream of pop culture. It just, that was a crazy time in music history because it was like, metal was just and rap and pop what it was all the same popularity you know and we were included in that and it was like you know the britney spears and the backstreet boys in sync and eminem the biscuit stain it was everything mixed in a in a pot and so we got to be a part of that and it was just it was crazy i mean we were selling out arenas left and right all over the place and money was just pouring pouring on us we couldn't make enough. We were getting money from shirts. We were making money from records. We were making money from just guarantees, you know, three to $500,000 a night or something like that. And back then, you know, it's, it's a lot now. What am I talking about? And so it's just like, you know, and it was just crazy. And uh, by that time, I had gotten married. All of us had gotten married and uh, had started having kids. But meanwhile, we're on the road being the rock star, too. And and so we just, it was like Vegas. What happens on the road stays on the road type of thing. We had some good times, but it, it seemed like every year that passed, it got a little bit darker and darker and then darker, you know. And uh, we started losing our souls. The soul being the mind, the will, and the emotions. It just started losing our, our core of who we were. It was like when I saw Fieldy or Jonathan or Monkey, I was like, that's not him. And I look in the mirror and I'd be like, that's not me. You know, they look at me and say, that's, we just became a different people. Uh, well, then a year or two after we had got married and had kids, divorces, five out of five, 100% failure. Everybody got divorced, broken homes, kids going with whoever, and uh, divorce settlements, millions of dollars going to these girls and our wives and they're, they're just some of them just blowing through it mine was the worst ever i was on tour my biggest and one of my greatest memories is touring with metallica system of a down and kid rock and i was struggling then because my wife ended up this is how she left me she got she ran into some old my wife when she was she was 14 she ran away from home so she lived kind of on the streets and on couches and so in Huntington Beach, she left Lake Tahoe and moved to Huntington Beach. So when we were married and I was on tour with Metallica, she ended up running into some old punk rock dudes that were from when she was a kid, right? And they used to like, well, look out for her because she was 14. And so she was like, hey, I married this guy. and da, da, da. Come hang out with me. He's always gone. So they ended up moving in and partying, start stealing things out of my house taking things to a pawn shop and uh my friend owned the pawn shop so he'd call me and say dude you send me a picture or whatever and i saw this in your living room and i'm like what and you're listening to brian welsh and what a story you're hearing and we're going to get the what and what happens next and what a story this is folks this is a confession and it's a beauty when we come back more of brian welsh's story corn's story here on our american stories
And we continue here on Our American Stories, Brian Welsh's story, the co-founder and lead guitarist of Korn. Every year that passed, things got darker and darker. The core of who we were was disappearing. Five out of five divorces, a 100% failure rate, a train wreck. Let's continue with Brian Welsh's story. So I called my wife. I'm like, people, who you having over our house? She's like, nobody, just trying to lie. And I'm hearing rumors and everything. Meanwhile, one of the punk dudes, she ends up getting a boyfriend. And I don't know what to do. I'm on tour with Metallica. This is my dream come true, man. I'm riding in planes with them. This is crazy. And I end up flying home. I was like, I'm taking this kid on the road. I don't know what I'm going to do or how I'm going to do it. But I have to protect her because there's these meth heads and skinheads around my kid, right? She's my little girl. So I take her with me, and I'm like, I need someone. I call management. I need someone to help me with this kid on the road. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So we ended up going into the enemy's camp and stealing one of theirs. Britney Spears' dancer was off the road with her. So we, so we hired her. She was... They were... Uh, <laughs> we hired her in between tours with Brittany and she became my daughter's nanny. So we did that for a little bit and man, we just tried to make the best of it. I, I, my heart was broken because my wife cheated on me with my daughter around and the skinheads were in my house and uh, I, just a, my hatred started rising up. I just, we had these, these guys that were in the, because uh, we toured with Ice Cube, you know, from NWA and so we hired this guy from Ice Cube and so he was connected with the Crips in LA and so I'm like talking to him at night all d- drunk or high on drugs and saying, man, can, this guy has done this to me. I need to do something to him. Can your guys, can I pay for, and he's, he was like, yeah, you can do that. I got guys that will do anything, you know. And uh, he said, you cross that line, you can never go back though. You're going to have a target on your back. And so I was just, I could never do that, but I just wanted to so bad and it was if he would encourage me, you know, who knows what would happen. But luckily that didn't happen. And, man, I just I made the best of it. I had her on the road for like two months. And uh, it was crazy because we had these big old, you know, like that guy. That guy, the Crips guy, but like pushing my daughter in a stroller. <laughs> you know, another Hispanic dude named Loke. We hired him. And uh, the first day I go, hey, dude, what do you know, like wrestling or something? You a boxer or something? Like, how do you get this job security? He goes, I know crazy, Holmes. I'm like, okay, Mr. Loke. He had hellbound tattooed on his head. You'd be pushing the stroller too. So we got off that tour. I ended up getting the, the, she was so spun out, my ex. She didn't show up to court. I got full custody of of the kid. And uh, I was a mess too. I wasn't much greater than her, but I was, at least I put the meth away and the coke and well, I didn't put the coke away, but I tried to, <laughs> really hard. But uh, there was a, you know what made me put it away? One night, I was at home, and uh, I ended up, you know, doing some drugs or whatever. I took some Xanax to go to sleep, and I ended. Up, I woke up at 3 a.m., and I went to check on my daughter, and uh, everybody had left by that point, and she was gone. She was, not, she's like two and a half years old, three years old gone out of her room and I'm like Janaya where are you like where are you looking all the beds she's gone and uh start freaking out and I go and I look at the back door and and it's like cracked open to the backyard and we have a pool and so I rush out there 
and right by the pool, there's a lounge chair, you know, where you lay out on, and she's sleeping right there. Like, her feet are on the ground, and she's like that. I felt like the biggest loser. She could have drowned. She went looking for me because that was my smoking chair. And so I quit right then. I was done, and... uh and I, I started working out. I got sober, stopped drinking. And uh, by that time, uh, Korn did our Untouchables record. That whole record, everybody got divorced around then. So everybody was in full-time, like, party mode. And that's when I had to get sober. So it was, it was hard because everybody was, like, going Richter, man. And uh, so I'm, I tried to live sober, right? That lasted, I don't know, a few months. And then I fell back into the stuff. I just I hired nannies to take care of my daughter and... That's when it got really dark, man, really dark. Vicodin, I was taking like dozens of Vicodin. And uh, we had these doctors that would write us prescriptions, give us anything we wanted, right? They're called, they, we call them rock doctors because, hey, I'm having anxiety on the road, doc. Here's some Xanax. My back hurts from playing every night. Here's some Vicodin, you know? Then we had people in Hollywood, we'd come home and they'd give us like bottles. I had like 200 xanax at one point and people would always come to me for xanax and so it was really dark man and it got even darker though because that's when i got i said i would never do crystal meth after what those skinheads did after seeing my ex-wife walk away from her daughter i was like i'm never touching that stuff that's scum scum of the earth drug right i got drunk one night and i was like oh, i used to love that high i'll just do it once i ended up getting the dealer's number i ended up uh an addict worse than before so i was like oh, i felt like a loser but i'm like i'm going on a world tour i gotta i, I started putting this meth in like wherever i could hide it i put it in uh, put it in plastic put it in deodorant like scoop the deodorant out put it back in and then just try to hide the smell in case drug docs came i was like thinking of everything man and uh, yeah, I took it to uh, everywhere. I took it to Asia, I took it to, to Europe. I ran out in Europe, had my dealer send me some in a candle because he made candle. He, he had this tweaker candle business, right? He thought he was going to get rich off candles. So he's like, I'll put, it, I'll put eight balls in a candle and then I'll make the candle and it'll be inside. And so I don't know if they have these x-ray machines that can see what's inside. You know, they see a ball or something inside a candle. I didn't know. I'm thinking like I could get popped. You know, and so I, by that time, the internet was starting to come out. It was like 2003 or something, and it was growing, and uh, you could track your package even on, on FedEx. And so I'd start seeing this package come from, you know, went to California, to New York, to London, and then, and I'm watching. I'm like, okay, it's coming. I'm watching my meth come on the internet, and it's like, I'm, I'm in this nice hotel, and I, and I see it. It says delivered. Got the email or whatever. And uh, I go down there. And I grabbed the package, and they didn't arrest me, so I got away with it. And uh, finished the tour, and I felt like the biggest loser then, man. I mean, loser, loser. How much guilt can you carry, right? The sins on your back. I'm like, oh, gosh, the secrets. And uh, it, was, it was too much to bear, man. And my parents are still together to this day, 53 years together or something. You know, right? That's a miracle. That's a miracle. And so I would, my, my mom would come over all say, hi, Bri, how you doing? And I'm just freaking up for two days. Hey, mom, how's it going? So I just felt so bad. They didn't raise me to be this. You know, my daughter, she's this perfect little Shirley Temple kid. I mean, she's just so sweet. Hi, daddy. 
you know, and I just, and I remember we had one more tour. It was 2004. It was Corn Lincoln Park. And I got so bad where I started thinking about killing myself. And I was like, I'm no good for my, my daughter. She deserves better than this. She would be better off without me. The rock star dream didn't satisfy. Um, I had some good times, but it was just everybody in my band's miserable. Most of the other bands out there struggle with addiction, and everyone's miserable, and everyone's struggling with addiction. And or you're you're a, just a, a bitter ex drunk, right? And you're just like, I don't want to be either. I don't want to be the party or the ex bitter guy. Let's just let's end it all, man. If I had a little bit more nerve to kill myself. Thank God it didn't happen. By that time, I had some friends. They ended, they ended up inviting me to come to church with them. Um, I was doing some real estate deals with them. And uh, I resisted at first for a little bit, you know. Because I just thought Christians were like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, man. It's just like, why are you so happy? I just want to choke you, you know. How you doing today? God bless you. All right, brother. It's like, shut up, man. What world do you live in? And you're listening to Brian Welsh, co-founder, lead guitarist of the band Korn, his talk at a church in Conway, Arkansas. And the audience is laughing. We're laughing here in the studio. But not a lot to laugh about. How much sin can you carry on your back? The secrets? It was too much for anyone. When we come back, the rest of this remarkable story, Brian Welsh's story, here on Our American Story. And we continue here on Our American Stories with Brian Welsh's story, the lead guitarist and co-founder of the multi-platinum band Korn. And as he had just said, let's end it all. If I had a little more nerve to kill myself, I just might have. And instead, he found himself in a church, a place he never thought he'd be. Let's continue with the rest and final part of this remarkable story. I had some friends, they ended, they ended up inviting me to come to church with them. I resisted at first for a little bit, you know, because I just thought Christians were like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, man. It's just like, why are you so happy? I just want to choke you, you know? How you doing today? God bless you. All right, brother. You know? And so, but they kept asking me, and I was like, you know, I'm just going to go check it out. They're sober. I tried to go to outpatient rehab to get off of meth, and the dude's like, I don't have any luck with meth. I'm sorry. And I'm like, there goes my hope. And so I'm like, I'm stuck with church only. That's my only option. God is so kind, man. As a last resort, he'll still take you. When you're all done with everything else that you tried on the planet, he's there still for you. And I ended up going to church and uh, it was crazy because all these different people, like three different people, by that time I moved back to Bakersfield where Corn grew up, where we went to school, right? And by that time uh, there was... There was like three of my friends. One of them that got me the meth, hooked me up with that dealer. He was telling me, you should go to church, man. Come to church with me. I'm like, what are you going to church? What? And I'm still high. And I'm like, no, man, I don't need that. Then the guy, the real estate guys invited me to go to church. And I'm thinking about going with them. And then there's someone else. I forget who, but they, oh, yeah, this punk rock dude that used to beat up people. He'd smash bottles of people's heads. He was telling me about Jesus. I'm like, what? You're weird, man. What happened to you? 
And the next thing you know, as you know, I, I finally gave in, and I was like, the church people, they get, they don't do meth in church, I don't think. So I should go there. Maybe it'll rub off, rub off on me, you know. And I get in there, and I see like there was these like like Hispanic dudes just look like gang members, you know, and they're up like praying together, and I'm just like, what? That's not Ned Flanders. These guys look scarier than the corn concert fans, you know. <laughs> crazy and people started telling me yeah see that she used to be in prostitution he used to be gang member they turned their lives around and i'm like so you guys really believe in this stuff i thought it was just like a thing to to be a good person you know you go to church and you say you go to church and then you're like you know you're proper and all that but i started seeing a whole new angle and i'm like because i was like if god is real where is he look at all the pain in the world right Look all the, you know, you don't see nothing. And they start telling me, no, he comes by the Spirit and he lives in your heart. And he starts to reveal himself to you inside. And, and I'm just like, what are you talking about? This sounds awesome, man. But at the same time, I'm like, you're weird, you know. So there's a battle going on. It was like, you know, it was like evil and good was, uh, it was just back and forth. And so I was, I was just there and I felt something. I felt a peace and I was like. Okay, this is my plan. Since I'm a, a public person, everybody knew who I was, especially in the hometown back then. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive Christ. I'm going to get him in here. Then I'm going to go home and talk to him and see if it's real. If it's not real, then all these people are crazy. And I'll try something else or kill myself. So I receive him. And uh, I, I said the prayer. You know, I, I actually asked Christ in my heart when I was 12, real quick, on my bathroom floor, when someone told me, Jesus was the savior of the world. And I was like, if there's a savior, then if it's true, then why not just do it? Jesus, will you come into my heart? Amen. Then I went back to watching Jason hack up people on Friday the 13th. But so when I, when I was on meth at the church, I went home and I received Christ. I went home and I was like, here we are. You know, I felt like that little boy again. I was like, Lord, that guy. But I prayed like I was a Christian for 10 years. I was so desperate. I wanted my daughter to have a good daddy. She deserved it. So I'm like, Lord, I am a loser. I'm going to ruin my life. I'm going to die from these drugs. This kid deserves a better dad. And I am nothing. I, I, I'm i a lost soul. Are you real? I prayed so hard. And I was just like, I, just look at my heart. You know I want to get off these drugs. It was all about I needed something from him, right? And that's okay. But then, you know, after a, uh, a couple weeks, it just I was going, they said, just go to, go to church. Bring your garbage. The pastor was like, bring your garbage to church. You don't have to clean up for me. You don't have to clean up for God. Just show up. Just start the relationship. And I, I, would, I would go high on meth to church, man. One day after church, I was at home, and I was just, I was, somebody bought me a Bible and everything. I was sitting there, and, uh, and I was just looking through. The, it seemed like every word was talking to me, saying something to me, you know. And I was just like, and I was like, I sounds cool it's all cute and everything but how do i know it's real i'm just in my heart i didn't say it out loud i'm just wondering like how do you know if this stuff's real people say you brainwashed from this you know and i just instantly like right then it would have been like two or three weeks or something like that it's a blur but i just remember like something came around me and it's it was like swirling and i kid you not it was it was a touch from the spiritual world where God is, God is spirit, it says. God is spirit. He is the, the big main spirit, the source of life, came around me, wrapped like love around me, 
from another dimension and I was just like and I, I looked up and all I could say was father and I was looking for like, like some angel or being or Jesus like this around me and I was just like I felt I felt accepted I felt forgived I felt I felt um, brand new I felt like I wasn't an addict but I was doing meth that week it was like you know, it says in the Bible, it says that he calls things that are not as though they are. It was like he was pouring everything into me that I was to become. Yeah. And I was just like, I was just, I was done. I was like, I couldn't talk. And it, the feeling was there for a few minutes and, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. And I was just, it felt like forever, man. And and it was, and it just lifted. It kind of lifted. And it was like, I was like, what was that? Oh, my God. And I, and I got it. It was like God revealing himself to me. And I was just like, oh my gosh, God just came into the room and revealed himself to me. Now, he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But sometimes we feel it more. He's always there. That's where faith comes in. But I was like, oh my gosh, God is real. He sees everything. He heard me. He's a, and I was like, he sees everything. Oh, and I started... Th- thinking about everything I've all the junk man everything all the secrets where I thought I was alone and then I go to church and just hear that all that's forgotten and washed away and it's like it never happened he wipes the slate clean start over brand new everything it's they call it the good news that's pretty good news right he promises to be with us that's who wants a God that doesn't understand right Jesus came and got annihilated. God became a man and, and became annihilated on the cross for us. He knows our sorrows. He knows rejection. He knows everything you've been through. He's been through. He knows it all. And that's why Jesus is the best. Now, when I first got saved, I was just woo, going back to church. I'm like... Oh my gosh, I love to I love to get high for so many years and now I'm feeling a high that is like from a spiritual world. It's real, a tangible. I'm feeling it. The Holy Spirit's real comes inside of you and you feel things and I'm like I'm like ah, everywhere I go. I'm like Jesus. I People are like you're weird now, <laughs> you know? I just felt I had a strong knowing. I can describe it like that to go home and quit the band. I went home and I, I sent off emails to everybody because those dudes could talk me into anything. If I would have called them and said, dude, I'm going to quit the band, they would say, no, you're not. Shut up. Come on. Come over. Let's go get, let's go get drunk. So I sent emails and I said, guys, I love you. Uh, I got to quit the band. I want to be home with my kid. I got God in my life. I want to get to know him. And I just, I'm sorry. And I love you. And they were in the middle of doing a record deal. And they had... Uh, EMI, I think it was, offering them $23 million. I quit. I didn't get a piece of that. I just did not want to serve money anymore. I was like, I just want to follow God. And he was saying, it was pretty simple to me, actually. Go be a dad. Stop touring. But $23 million, yeah. Well, you made how much money before that, and look at your life. So it was pretty simple to me. And so I quit, and... uh, I went through a lot of things. Jesus started taking me through some sufferings and uh, to cleanse my soul. It's called fire. 
that, that, that could be called fire and it purifies like gold. gold. Fire purifies gold and makes it the shiny thing that we see. And so he does that with our souls through negative circumstances, through allowing things to come into your life to to, you know, to challenge your love for people, to challenge your faith, are you going to still believe? And it's the most, it's, it's, it's the way you go to maturity. And it's real. I'm telling you guys, this is the most realest thing I've ever experienced. The Lord sent me back to corn in 2012 after I was away. My big story was like, hey, I am, I'm the guy that left it all to follow Jesus. You know, that was my thing. It became my prideful story. And next thing you know, he sends me back. He goes, hey, you're not better than them. I want you to be with them too. And so I'm back with the band now. And life could not be better. I promise you, it's the best thing I ever did. And he's he's everywhere. He's If you don't want him today, he's, he's already going to be at your house because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And you've been listening to Brian Welsh's story. My goodness, that final call on the threshing floor, my daughter... I have to be a dad to my daughter, and he's just begging for intervention. He's at as low a point as anyone can be, any human can be. And he finds this grace in God, and it's a heck of a story. It reminds us of the Johnny Cash story, where he found himself at a certain part in his life. It's not in the movie Walk the Line, but read the biography of a man called Cash, and there it is. And one day he finally just yields and finds his God and pursues his passion and becomes the man he'd always wanted to be. Brian Welsh's story, so many American stories, how faith animates and saves lives and souls. His story, so many of our stories, here on Our American Stories.